Before we begin, a word about our sponsors. From hybrid cloud to AI, IBM is the backbone of some of the most critical systems that keep the world running. IBM's technologies and services help banks process credit card transactions, businesses run supply chains, telcos connect customers, healthcare providers improve patient care, and companies and cities tackle cyber threats. The IBM Native American and Indigenous Diversity Leadership Council is proud to sponsor this Stroke of Genius episode. Mr. President, Dr. Biden, Madam Vice President, Mr. Emhoff, Americans, and the world. On January 20th, 2021, Amanda Gorman stood at the podium in front of the U.S. Capitol and delivered her poem, The Hill We Climb. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace, and the norms and notions of what just is isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is... It was the inauguration of President Joe Biden, and the 22-year-old's dazzling performance stole the show. Her poem examines hard truths, asks big questions, and imagines different futures. This places her in a long line of illustrious Black writers who've used their art to call attention to the pressing issues of the day. And there were certainly a lot of issues to address. A global pandemic, partisan divisions, and, just two weeks earlier, an extremist assault on the U.S. Capitol. Gorman rewrote her poem in response. And how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it. Would destroy Throughout American history, there have been many forms of protest art. Billie Holiday crooning the song Strange Fruit. Fruit. Keith Haring's vivid pop art and Langston Hughes' pointed poetry. Each of these works of creative expression is a form of intellectual property, and each of these artists are copyright owners. Writing poetry, Gorman has said, is an inherently activist act. For her, the pen is a potential weapon, one that she often wields to fight systemic racism. 2020 had certainly been a year worthy of an artistic weapon. In response to countless acts of police brutality against Black Americans, thousands took to the streets. It was perhaps the largest protest movement this country has ever seen. Across the U.S., artists joined the protests, using their creativity and talent to give visual expression to the calls for racial justice. Like Amanda Gorman's poem, signs, banners, murals, and sculptures sought to imagine a different future. During this time, a new form of street art accompanied the movement, one that we've seen a few times before, but nothing like this. Works of art were being created in the heat of the moment, impromptu pieces from emerging artists created on whatever material was available. We are striving to forge our union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters and conditions of man. And so we lift our gaze. Thanks to copyright, 
It's nearly impossible to destroy a song like Strange Fruit, or a poem, especially one as powerful as The Hill We Climb. But visual art, especially protest art, is precarious. This has become a breaking issue in copyright law. What are the rights of the street artists from our tumultuous summer? What happens if a building owner wants to get rid of a piece of protest art that's on his property? What happens when intellectual property collides with real property? From the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, this is Stroke of Genius. If you've ever been to Soho in New York City, you know that it's a shopper's paradise. Chanel, Burberry, Nike, Prada, H&M, Forever 21, Sephora, Soho has it all. Last March, at the start of the coronavirus pandemic, Soho shops were forced to close by stay-at-home orders. In response, a few of the giant windows in the neighborhood's stately buildings were boarded shut. Then, following the protests over the murder of George Floyd, windows were shattered and stores were ransacked. Huge sheets of plywood went up over almost every window in the neighborhood. The streets of Soho became a bleak, blank ghost town. It just looked, looked like apocalypse. That's Amir Diop, a Brooklyn-born street artist. Amir was just 21 years old at the time. He and other artists immediately saw the potential in Soho's plywood walls. Everything started getting boarded up as at, right after George Floyd had died. I said to myself, I was like, why don't I just paint on the boards? Because like, this isn't, I don't see any legal reason why I could not do that. So I was like, I might as well paint on it. And so I did. And then like this, a surgence of just artists just started popping out of nowhere. When I came out to paint, I met Amir the first day. And, well, actually, I met him the second day, but I saw him the first day. Artist Constance Patton traces her roots back to Detroit, where artists have taken over many of that city's abandoned or boarded-up spaces. Armed with what she calls her bag of indictment, or her bombing bag with spray paint, gloves, and other supplies, she joined the convergence of artists in Soho. First day when I came, there were hundreds of artists. By a week later, there's probably, like, six other artists I would see consistently putting pieces up. And and we just kind of never stopped. We just showed up every day and never stopped. The murals Constance painted across Soho are part of her goddess project. They're vibrant portraits of Black and Indigenous women, inspired by her travels to 21 countries around the world and her fascination with the different ways in which women adorn themselves. If you took an ancient goddess, what would she look like today? Like, she'd probably have one gold front, you know, bamboo earrings, you know, and kind of, but also like the third eye or the first eye is very prominent. So just kind of using the work to honor like tradition and femininity. While painting a mural just outside the Prince Street subway station, Constance thought of all the women who were going to work each day in the middle of the pandemic. Essential workers headed to jobs in grocery stores, hospitals, and public transportation. She wanted her goddess project to represent them. The first day, like when I first put the piece out, all of a sudden, like, like the women that that run the uh, that drive the trains, you know, work for MTA, were like 
yes, girl, you know, and I'm like, okay, this is dope. It's representation. Like it's, it's beautiful, godly representation of black women. Really for me, they're like all types of women. So the first few images I started putting up were of black, of black people who were going through traumatic events that I was trying to portray the fact of what everybody was feeling. That's Amir again. One of the murals he created with his friend Eddie Romeo spanned four boards at the Museum of Modern Art's design store. Circling around what Amir describes as a wormhole, they painted smiling black and brown figures. At the top of the piece, they painted the words, take me to a place where. Various figures completed the sentence with their t-shirts, which said things like, I won't be judged by my weight, no fake news, and Black Lives Matter. There was gay rights, there was feminism, there was, there was obesity, the different struggles that people had to go through in their lives, and they were all going to a place where it was much better. And what ended up happening was, at the end of painting that, I went right next to like the empty panel that was right next to it, and I said, if MoMA cares about art, they'll save this. So I wrote that down on the piece, and then I went back, and then no contact, no nothing. The MoMA design store may not have recognized the power of the moment, but plenty of New Yorkers did. The streets of Soho had been transformed into an outdoor gallery for roughly 250 works of protest art. We started noticing that the, the, the neighbors were coming out. You would see like elders and people that have been there forever. And they're like, oh, this reminds me of the factory. I knew Basquiat and like telling us all these stories. Soho in the summer of 2020 felt like the 1980s when the neighborhood was home to Andy Warhol's factory and countless art galleries. For artists like Constance who'd been isolated at home during the pandemic, it just felt good to be outside creating with other people. It like really saved my life. And, and when I started to see the reaction of other women, and not just black women, like all types of women. Both Amir and Constance are aware that street art is, by definition, transitory. The day after an artist paints a mural, another artist can come along and paint over it. A landlord can whitewash a wall. But in the beginning, they were too caught up in the moment to care. I never considered getting a piece back. Like, I never even considered it because I've done street art. You just never get it back. It's just for the streets. You just put it out there. I didn't come out here for any of the notions of just go and do it so people can, so you can get famous and make money. I did it because we were hurting as people. Everybody was hurting just because it was just, it was ridiculous. And then like all the other artists came out and then I was like, oh, oh, I have to make sure these are okay, <laughs> like legally. Amir and Constance soon had to pivot from a mode of creating to that of protecting. Even though they didn't have intellectual property on their minds when they set out to create their art, they do have rights to protect their work. And the situation in Soho was particularly tenuous. The artists weren't painting on buildings. They were painting on plywood boards that could easily be removed. The fact that their art bore witness to a historic moment made it especially significant and potentially more valuable. When I did like maybe the fifth or sixth piece, that's when someone tried to buy it from me. And I was like, really? Like, 
Because I'm like, well, it's on the wall. Like, it's outside. You know, he's like, well, I'll give you, you know, this much. And, and then another woman was like, oh, no, this is worth, you know, 10000 This is, no, that should be. And I'm all of a sudden I'm standing there like there's three people that are that are pricing my work for me. Having people price her work may have been flattering, but it quickly became unnerving because the artwork started to disappear. Overnight, panels would just be gone. They don't have proof, but Amir, Constance, and many of the other artists believe that the art was taken away by people who either wanted to display it in their own homes or wanted to profit from it. Almost all of the murals that Constance painted during that time disappeared. I did uh, like 26 pieces. I have three. So people got my work somewhere. Maybe they're in basements. I don't know. It was it was crazy. Like literally, I stopped uh, geotagging them because people would show up like the next day and take them. I have pieces, pieces have been taken that are like unfinished. Um, and then like the security guard calls me like, oh, these people just left with a truck or something. They took the work. And then there was the case of Amir's wormhole painting. Only days after Amir and Romeo painted their mural, he received a disturbing message. I heard from one of the people walking by that the piece was coming down. Amir came into the studio and I remember feeling a sense of relief because he can go get his piece. And then he came, he left and he came back like 10 minutes later, 15 minutes, and he's like, MoMA destroyed my piece. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean? But it made me think and made me wonder, does the high art community and does the high art world believe that what happened here to the people was art? What do artists activists do when the art they're creating to memorialize a moment is so quickly being destroyed or stolen? They organize. When Amir and Constance first started painting in Soho, they quickly joined forces with a group of five other artists. Well, originally, it was basically a bunch of friends who just met on the street and said, hey, you guys wanna, you guys wanna paint every day? And that was like, that was it. That was the basis of the collective. So we're called Soho Renaissance Factory. We do art for public good. Uh, we're based with public art and beautifying spaces. The Soho Renaissance Factory's mission soon turned from painting to preservation. As the pandemic slowed over the summer, stores began to open up and it became a race to save their art. The collective relied on a network of friends, artists, security guards, even Instagram followers to tip them off when a plywood board was being removed or possibly stolen. Other artists or photographers or just strangers will hit you up like, hey, this piece is coming down or... Um, I'm here right now. When the Renaissance factory got a tip, they rushed to the site. Imagine if you were just hot and sweaty and just running around looking for some boards in the middle of August and July. I was out there at like 8 o'clock in the morning, just coming in on the train. I'm like, all right, I'm ready to go. I get the coffee in me. I'm ready. I pick up like a, a bunch of boards. We were going out with handcarts and we were pushing the handcarts down the street with like five, 10, 15 boards at a time. Oh, you know, because we're just hand carting it on cobblestone. It was like not easy. We put them on the cart, we pull them back, and we just keep going back and forth. Constance says that sometimes stores refused to give up the boards. There's buildings that 
have those pieces and won't give them back because they're like, well, this is our wood. And you're like, uh, why don't you, I'll give you another piece of wood then. Let's call it wood. Sure. I got, I went to Home Depot. I brought back the same size of wood and they're like, well, no, I like, I love this wood. They won't call it artwork, you know, but they don't want to give them back. At this point, I have to pause and imagine a different scenario in which artists aren't running around in the dog days of summer to save their own art from destruction. Are property owners really just allowed to destroy art like that? Shouldn't they be required by law to reach out to the artists before they remove their boards? Before 1991, United States federal law was pretty clear on these issues. A visual artist, no matter how famous, had little federal recourse if their art was destroyed, altered, or misattributed. In 1933, when Mexican artist Diego Rivera painted his mural Man at the Crossroads in Rockefeller Center, John D. Rockefeller Jr. insisted he paint over a portrait of Vladimir Lenin. Rivera refused, and Rockefeller ordered the entire fresco chiseled off the wall. In 1989, Richard Serra's 120-foot-long, 12-foot-high steel sculpture, Tilted Arc, heralded by the world as a masterful gesture, was cut into three pieces and removed from Manhattan's Federal Plaza after office workers objected to it. In both of these cases, and countless others like them, the artists had no recourse. All of this changed in 1991 with a little-known amendment to the U.S. Copyright Act called the Visual Artists' Rights Act, or VERA. The Visual Artists' Rights Act was enacted in 1990 as Section 106A of the Copyright Act. That's 17 U.S.C. 106. 17 U.S.C. 107 already existed. So they literally just stuck VERA in as this you know, new section between 106 and 107 called 106 capital A. That's Megan No. She's a partner at Prior Cashman LLP and a co-chair of its art law group in New York. She works directly with artists on intellectual property issues, and she cares a lot about art. I was always really interested in visual arts as a child. After I graduated from undergraduate, I went to law school, and I was only interested in becoming an art lawyer. Vera covers traditional types of art, like painting and drawing. It also covers sculptures and prints or photographs, as long as they're signed and numbered editions of 200 or less. Vera doesn't cover a lot of other things, like posters, maps, motion pictures, or art that's made for hire. So, if an artist is paid or commissioned to create a mural for an advertisement or to promote a political candidate or cause, that's not protected. There's a recent example of beautiful protest art that was created during the protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock. They were rich in creativity and artful resistance, but they would not have been protected under Vera. As a lawyer, knowing the precedent would examine that, you know, wh whether it's promotional or advertising material question first, because I'm nervous about it. Here's one precedent that makes Megan nervous. In 1999, Gideon Coalition, a New York nonprofit legal service, commissioned an artist named Joanne Polera to create a banner to hang above an information table in the Empire State Plaza as part of a lobbying day. 
The 30-foot-long banner depicted a diverse group of people attempting to obtain legal services. The manager of the plaza had his workers remove it after the event, and in the process, the banner was torn into three pieces. Polera, the artist, sued the manager under Vera for destroying her artwork. But the courts found that she was not protected because her banner was promotional material, created to draw attention to the work of the Gideon Coalition. This case was almost 20 years ago, but looking at that in the context of what has gone on this past summer, where we have spontaneous works cropping up across the country by artists who are taking it upon themselves to interpret a political message through their artwork, I think that those would hopefully be distinguishing facts as compared to the Polara case and would enable those artists to hopefully successfully argue that their works are not advertising or promotional material. But again, the language in the in the Polara case was pretty bad. Amir, Constance, and the other artists in Soho definitely did not feel like they were able to control the fate of the work they created. How Vera applies to the question of unsanctioned street art is a decidedly gray area. There's very little precedent on Vera, actually. If you key cite the statute on Westlaw or Lexis, one of the legal precedent databases, that's maybe 100 cases. So over 30 years, that's that's really not a robust body of precedent for this case. And so when we look at cases like Polara or English, which are potentially relevant in the context of protest art, we're really pulling these little threads. When Megan No pulls at all the little threads to consider whether an artist is protected under Vera, one of her first big questions is this. Did the artist have permission to install the art? Asking for permission is not really the street artist way. And even when an artist does try, getting permission, especially during a pandemic, can be tough, as Constance explains. I actually tried to get permission in the beginning. I was like asking, you know, just whoever I saw, like, do you know who owns this building? And there was like a lot of runaround. Who can you get permission from? There was no one to call. There was no system set in place or even the cops like, do you have a permit? And I'm like, yeah, sure. What permit? From where? From who? Like during the shutdown, they all made permits? Without a building owner's permission, street art is, quite simply, illegal. And if a dispute arises and there was no permission granted, courts tend to favor the property owner. In a 1997 case, a group of artists who had painted the walls of a New York community garden sued to prevent the destruction of their murals. The court ruled against the artists but it left open the possibility that Vera could apply in the case of removable works, even when created illegally. What we saw over the summer with a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests, including Amir's work, is that these murals were in many cases applied to sheets of plywood that could arguably be removed without destroying the work. And so I think artists who did their work on removable surfaces are arguably much better positioned than those who painted something on the building itself or on the street or the sidewalk. What about those artists like Amir whose art was already destroyed? Do they have any recourse? In 2014, the courts handed down a very surprising decision. In 2002, a developer named Jerry Wolkoff 
granted permission to a graffiti artist to curate murals on the exterior of a complex of warehouses he owned in Queens, New York. The massive buildings had originally housed a water meter factory, and they were now home to artist studios. The site, which came to be known as Five Points, evolved into a mecca for graffiti art. Tourists came to visit. It was featured in movies and TV, and the very best muralists came to paint. In 2013, however, the developer got approval to demolish Five Points and build luxury condos on the property. But when he decided that he wanted to redevelop, he, in the dead of night, had people whitewash over these murals with, like, cheap paint. It was just so disrespectful and rude. The artist sued the developer for destroying their art and violating Vera. In the Five Points case, the courts ruled that, first, the work is viewed as meritorious, and second, that this stature is recognized by art experts, other members of the artistic community, or some cross-section of society. The artists were awarded a whopping $6.75 million in damages. Megan No thinks that the language in this decision is good for creators of protest art, and that it leaves room for some cross-section of society to recognize their stature. Street artists may not have access to the art experts who weighed in on the murals at Five Points, but they have one modern advantage that drafters of Vera weren't thinking about 30 years ago. Social media. We're all, you know, sitting home in our houses during quarantine or lockdown or what have you. We're all, I think, spending a little bit more time scrolling on our screens, probably more than we more than I should in my case. So we are seeing things more quickly and we are engaging with digital images of works and those are proliferating around the internet more quickly than maybe they would have a decade ago, certainly than they would have a decade ago. So it it may be easier for a work to acquire recognized stature more quickly as a result of social media. Megan No spends a lot of time thinking about how these precedents would apply to the creators of protest art. But at the end of the day, she acknowledges that it's unlikely a street artist would be able to go to court. Litigation in this country is extremely expensive and can often be a six-figure number. Big law firms aren't set up to litigate, our, you know, artists' rights issues without being, like, we would have had to be paid something for our time. So it's a real dilemma. These are just among a few of the practical obstacles for an artist who might want to bring legal claims. Vera, like the rest of the Copyright Act, does not have any automatic fee-shifting statute, so there's no guarantee of recovering legal fees. Between that and difficult-to-prove damages, it's almost impossible for artists to pursue Vera claims without something like pro bono assistance. It's a pretty tough break for artists. But Amir and Constance say they aren't interested in litigation. And I know that could be a thing, but I'm not looking to sue anybody. If I put them up, it's for the people. They live there. So if someone's going to steal it, they're really stealing from the neighborhood. And I am a true street artist. Like, I'm, I won't chase them, you know. But also, like, this, this is a part of history. So it makes sense to me, like, that the artist would have some urgency over their own work. Constance's point that when a piece of art is stolen or destroyed, it's the neighborhood that's robbed of both its art and its history gets right to the heart of an often overlooked but very cool aspect 
of the Visual Artist Rights Act. In addition to protecting the individual rights of an artist, Vera also has a public purpose, and that is the idea that living and working surrounded by works of art has positive societal effects. When artists are protected, we all benefit. When we think about where we are today as a society, protest art, whether in the form of a poem or a mural or some other new art form we haven't even thought about, isn't going away anytime soon. These cases and questions will continue to arise. All of these murals, I think loosely can be said to have something to do with advocacy, right? Megan Noe says that property owners who want to remove art from their buildings can easily make a good faith effort to track down artists. I should be clear that I'm not giving legal advice on this program, but hypothetically, were I to be advising a property owner in this situation, if a work that was installed on their property has one of those social media handles on it, I would think that in the as part of my making a reasonable, good faith attempt to contact the artist, I would want to look on major social media platforms where I can find some contact information for them. Unfortunately, Vera hasn't caught up to the social media age and only requires property owners to search the visual arts registry maintained by the Copyright Office. And while Amir and Constance actually have submitted a visual arts registry statement, it's unlikely that all protest artists, especially in a heated political moment, will take the time to submit such a requirement. So, there are lessons for property owners and lessons for artists too. Street artists can take steps to protect their work. They can first try to gain permission, preferably in writing, from the property owner. But for an artist that doesn't want to obtain permission, they can consider the surface and medium being used. They have the option of choosing to paint on a plywood board over a brick wall. And this might be better, because that's more likely to be a removable work. Creators of such works do not actually need to register a copyright for the work to be initially protected and for the building owner's obligations to be triggered. Registration is only necessary prior to the artist commencing a lawsuit. And if, like Constance and Amir, they find out that their work has been removed or destroyed, it's best if they respond in a timely manner. Under Vera, a property owner is required to give the artist 90 days to remove a work of art before it's destroyed. Good things are happening for the artists at the Soho Renaissance Factory. This past winter, their murals and those of other independent artists were shown at the prestigious National Arts Club. They landed a residency and a studio space at the Nomo Hotel in Soho. And they struck a deal with an art center in New Jersey to launch a future exhibit of some of the boards they managed to rescue from destruction. And of course, they continue to paint. Part of my job is like, I'm, a, I'm doing public art. I don't, that is what I'm doing. My piece is up in LA right now. I don't know if I'm gonna get that back. I don't know, like, that'd be dope, but you know, it's not gonna stop me. You know, I think it stopped a lot of artists. That was the biggest bummer to me was like, you know, people like, I'm not putting my work out here and it got stolen. I'm just like, as long as I can put this work up and it makes people feel like a little better, then I'm gonna keep doing it. Like, I'm gonna keep doing it. Because we're here to inspire the next generation. And if my artwork is a way to inspire kids from 
different backgrounds to come become artists, then I think it would make the world a better place. And it doesn't just have to be art. It could be everything. Any form of art, a street mural in protest, or a poem for a president, can help make the world a better place. It reminds us of the history we stand on and the future we strive toward. In the words of Amanda Gorman, never underestimate the power of art as the language of the people. The IBM Native American and Indigenous Diversity Leadership Council is proud to sponsor this Stroke of Genius episode. From hybrid cloud to AI, IBM's the backbone of some of the most critical systems that keep the world running. Their technologies and services help banks process credit card transactions, businesses run supply chains, telcos connect customers, healthcare providers improve patient care, and companies and cities tackle cyber threats. 